I never dated very much. Um, before I met Stephanie, I never really seriously dated anybody else. And further, I wasn't very good at dating. Uh, the few dates that I did go on, I got very nervous and kind of acted like a weird, crazy person. Um, I remember my first date, or one of my first dates that I ever went on, I worked up the courage to ask this girl out. And then after I asked her out, I started to freak out because I realized that I would have to talk to her. And so I went on the computer and I Googled uh, what to talk on, on, talk about on dates. And then I proceeded to write those things on an index card. And then I brought that index card to the date and put it on my lap while I was eating. And if the conversation stalled at all, I would glance down and look at my notes about what I should talk about. Uh, on that same date, I was going to get into my car and I hit my head on the side of the door and I'm trying to pretend like it didn't happen playing all cool, but I, you know, I got hit pretty hard on the side of the door. So I wasn't very good at dating because I tended to kind of tense up and get nervous and not be myself. But what ha ha helped when I met Stephanie was that there were people who kind of went before me and made it a little bit easier on me. So before the church opened, we needed to become a 501c3 organization in order to kind of have more legitimacy as a, a church, a nonprofit. And to do that, we secured the services of a local lawyer who happened to be a longtime family friend. And Stephanie was the paralegal who was assigned to our case, and she worked on uh, that case for quite some time and my dad was serving in an administrative capacity with the church at that time and so he was the one who was corresponding the most with the lawyer's office so he got to know Stephanie quite well and was impressed with the work that she did and thought she seemed like a nice person so my parents started talking to Stephanie's boss and asked her what her story was was she married and Stephanie's boss basically told my parents Stephanie's whole life story. But not only that, Stephanie's boss also told her about me and my family and literally drew up a family tree of everyone in my family that he knew. I met Stephanie for the first time at the closing on this facility and I honestly never expected to see her again. But she started coming to the church and Stephanie's boss, in the meantime, told my dad that Stephanie kind of liked me. She thought I was cute. Further, I started working with Stephanie on finalizing the 501c3 paperwork, and she started calling me, and she probably could have fit some of those calls in the one phone call, but she would make it stretch out to maybe two or three phone calls. And uh, then to finalize the paperwork, I needed to sign a document. So she agreed to meet with me, uh, in front of a coffee shop in a parking lot to sign this last paper. And I had everything set up for me. I knew she liked me. I didn't know her well, but I knew that she was a decent person, that she was a believer. And we're standing right in front of a coffee shop. So I went there and really wanted to ask her out, but instead I just signed the paper and then just stood there awkwardly trying to work up the courage to ask her out and didn't do it. Thankfully, she had given me her personal phone number and I was able to ask her out that night. But I'm grateful that my parents and that Stephanie's boss 
and even Stephanie had helped me out. And all I had to do was ask her out. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we see that God goes before his people and he secures for them a future. He prepares the way for his people. Verses 1 to 3, we see that terror has fallen on the Canaanites. It says in the text that their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them. They are completely terrified of the Israelites because of the activity of God on behalf of Israel. And what's interesting is that the Canaanites have given up on the fight before the fight has even begun. And what's interesting about that is that human speak, hum, humanly speaking, if the Canaanites were wise, they could have destroyed the Israelites. After the Israelites crossed the Jordan, they were in enemy territory, and yet the Canaanites do not go on the offensive. They go into hiding. But the Israelites are going to all be circumcised, which means they're all going to be vulnerable. Remember back in Genesis chapter 34, the sons of Jacob told the Shechemites that they needed to be circumcised in order that they might intermarry with the Israelites. But after they were circumcised, two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, went through and killed all of them. And the same thing could have easily happened to the Israelites. They were in a very vulnerable position, and yet God prepared the way so the Canaanites didn't attack and the battle was won before even the battle started. Now I believe what happens in many of these passages are stories that happen to Israel but not that they're not just stories but they're pictures and signposts that kind of point us to what the salvation of God is like. And we know from this passage and from others throughout the Bible that God is a God who takes initiative. He's the one who goes before us. Ephesians 1, 3-6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, if you're a believer, before you were even born, before you even did good or bad, God knew that you were going to sin, and so he set in, plan, in motion a plan to save you. Ephesians 2, 4-9 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The text says, even when we are dead in our sins, Christ made us alive. Now what can a dead person do? A dead person can't do anything. He or she is dead. Which shows that God is the initiator of salvation. And all we need to do is accept it by faith. And note the pattern of Scripture here. The pattern is not, okay, Israel, follow the law, and then I'll bring you out of Egypt. Salvation was not contingent upon them keeping the law. The law wasn't even given until after Israel left Egypt. They couldn't keep the law because there was no law. 
Rather, God rescued them from slavery and from the fury of Pharaoh's forces. And then he called them to live differently because they were chosen, saved people. Let's not forget that it is God who goes before us. Salvation is by grace and all we need to do is accept his gift of salvation by faith. It's a free gift. So we see that in Christ, God secures for us a future. But not only does God secure for us a future, but he also takes away the disgrace of our past. He takes away the disgrace of our past. In verse 2, Joshua is told to make flint knives and circumcise the males. Now, circumcision is quite significant in the Old Testament because it was a sign of the covenant that was given to Abraham. And there are a number of reasons that this particular sign was given. Uh, One possible reason was that one of the promises that was given to Abraham was that he would have many descendants. So it was fitting that the mark of the covenant would be on the male reproductive organ. In addition, In a covenant ceremony, there was often a cutting that an an animal was cut, usually in order to symbolize what would happen if one of the parties broke the covenant. Further, it was a permanent sign that could not be undone, and it was an outward sign and a reminder that the descendants of Abraham were to walk before God and to be blameless. And in essence, it was a sign of faith. It was a sign that they were part of the covenant people. And Abraham and his descendants were commanded to keep this covenant sign of circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17, God says this to Abraham. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Likewise, the Israelites are given the command to circumcise all male children that are born. Leviticus 12.3 says, And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Yet what I find remarkable in this passage is that the males of Joshua's day aren't already circumcised. I mean, the text indicates that their fathers were circumcised and they were ample commands to circumcise. And yet the males of Joshua's day were not circumcised. And it is redundant in saying how many times in this passage, this fact that they were not circumcised. And this was one of the most basic and simple signs of the covenant. And yet the people of Moses day cast it by the wayside. The people of Moses day were marked by profound disobedience in this passage we're told that they were not allowed to enter into the promised land because they did not obey the voice of the lord so here we are in joshua's day and the fact that the people are not circumcised communicates a couple of things first it communicates that i am not a part of the covenant people of israel Second, it is a reminder of sin. It's a physical reminder of disobedience. So every day, the Israelite males are walking around with the marks of disobedience and a demonstration that they're not a part of the covenant people. And I think that that uh, the fact that God tells the Israelites to be circumcised indicates that he's renewing the covenant with them here. And also, he's communicating to them, I'm not going to judge you by your past. I'm not going to look at you as the rebellious, disobedient people that your parents were. 
you are new in me. In verse 9, God says to Joshua, Today I have rolled away your reproach. The reproach of Egypt. In the New Testament, we're not commanded to be circumcised in the physical sense like the Israelites were, but we are commanded to be circumcised in the spiritual sense. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Romans two twenty eight to 29 says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what God does is He saves us and He transforms our hearts so that we're no longer the same people that we were before. And because of that fact that Christ was cut off for us, we are forgiven of our sins and we're no longer defined by our past. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Maybe there are some people here today who are living in the past, who are allowing the guilt of yesterday to steal your joy today. Maybe today we need to let go of our past and embrace our identity in Christ. Embrace the newness that Christ has given us. There are allegedly 55 people in the world who have a disorder called hyperthemesia, also known as highly superior autobiographical memory or HSAM. These people spend excessive amounts of time thinking about the past and they can recall events that occurred uh, many years prior that were insignificant with great detail. One of them's name is Alexander Wolfe. In an interview with, for National Public Radio, she described how she remembers every detail of a mundane activity like driving to Target for groceries, which occurred more than 10 years ago. She remembers what she wore and ate every day for the past decade. She remembers if the fan in the bedroom was running on this date last year. Sometimes this extraordinary ability is an advantage, but at other times, many other times, it said it's a curse. One interviewee in the NPR report says that he remembers all the wrongs done against him and all the wrongs he has committed. And that very scenario is the basis of an episode from the television show House. A middle-aged character with hyperthemesia remembers everything she said and did since the onset of puberty. She also remembers the wrongs people have done to her and those memories haunt and harass her. The episode demonstrates, as the NPR story states, that we need to forget as much as we need to remember. We need to forget as much as we need to remember. Some of us who are believers today, we need to forget some things. Believer, God has rolled away your approach. He does not view you as a covenant-breaking lawbreaker anymore, but He views you as a son and a daughter. There, Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Believer, let go of your past reproach. Embrace who God has made you to be. In Christ, God secures for us a future. He takes away the reproach of our past. And He presently allows us to partake in a never-ending feast of grace. He presently allows us to partake in a never-ending feast of grace. We see in this passage that after the Israelites were circumcised, they ate the Passover meal. The Passover meal was a meal that the Israelites would eat in order to celebrate the time when the angel of death passed over them and they were delivered from slavery in the land of Egypt. It was a picture and a reminder of the deliverance of God. As believers in Jesus, we no longer celebrate the Passover, but we do celebrate the Lord's Supper communion. And in communion, we remember the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for us. But we also remember our need for Christ. When we drink the bread and drink or eat the bread and drink from the cup, we're reminded that our lives are tied up in Christ's life, that we're dependent upon him. And communion is also a picture of the love that Christ has for us. In his book, Doubting, author Alistair McGrath shares a story that helps illustrate the point of communion. An aunt of mine died some time ago, having lived to be 80 or so. She had never married. During the course of her clearing out her possessions, we came across a battered old photograph of a young man. My aunt had, it turned out, fallen hopelessly in love as a young girl. It had ended tragically. She never loved anyone else and kept a photograph of the man she had loved for the remainder of her life. Why? Partly to remind herself that she had once been loved by someone. As she had grown old, she knew that she would have difficulty believing that at one point in her life, she really had meant something to someone. That someone has, had once cared for her and regarded her as his everything. It could all have seemed a, dr a dream, an illusion, something she had invented in her old age to console her in her declining years, except that the photograph gave the lie to that. It reminded her that it had not been invented. She really loved someone once and was loved in return. The photograph was her sole link to a world in which she had been valued. The communion bread and wine are like that photograph, McGrath says. They reassure us that something that seems too good to be true, something that we might even be suspected of having invented, really did happen. So we have in communion this image of Christ's love for us. And we partake of communion. And as we do so, we partake of Christ's love. But communion also looks forward to the time when Christ will come back in love. It looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It, in the text it says that on the day after they partook communion, they ate from the fruit of the land. They no longer had to eat the manna, the bread that came down from heaven, which they had eaten for 40 years, by the way. 40 years of eating manna because of their disobedience. 
Yet God sustained them. And now they've entered the promised land. They get to partake of the produce of the land. And they get to experience the land that was promised as flowing with milk and honey. Ladies and gentlemen, we get to experience a feast now. We get to have a relationship with Christ, a union with Christ that's pictured in communion. We are sustained by God's very hand, by Jesus, who is described in John 6 as the bread who's sent down from heaven, the manna of God. But one day we will enter into the promised land and we'll come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and we'll get to see Jesus face to face and to experience a relationship with Him that has no end. And in that moment, we will be filled with joy unspeakable as we receive our prize, Christ. In Christ, God secures for us a future. He takes away the reproach of our past and He presently allows us to partake of a never-ending feast of grace. Note the constant there. Christ. He's the key to healing our past. He's the key to living in the present. And He's the key to preparing for our future. He is everything. And now in this moment, we're going to feast on grace. When you came in, you received the communion cup. And when we partake together, we recognize our need for Christ in our lives. Our need for His love. Our need for His forgiveness. Our need for His grace. So at this time, if you would peel off the first portion and we'll partake of the bread in just a moment. Matthew 26, verse 26 says this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let us partake together. This time, if you'd peel back the next layer and we'll partake of the cup in just a moment. Matthew 26, verses 27 and 29, it says, And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it, with, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let us partake together. Note the promise in Matthew 26. We will partake of the cup again with Jesus. Jesus' disciples would and we will. Our future is secured. In Christ, God secures for us a future. He takes away the reproach of our past. And He presently allows us to partake of a never-ending feast of grace.